How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are, um, doing a bit of a special here. Uh, normally, we just continue on our regular Bible reading, Bible studies, but uh, considering um, I'm going to be leaving on Friday for two weeks, I uh, thought, uh, why not just do one more Q&A, uh, do a bit of a, a study, see what scripture says of some things, and just kind of open it up uh, like a Q&A, uh, kind of a midweek Bible study Q&A broadcast. So I'm sure you don't mind. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, issues, insights, any uh, discussion topics, debate topics, anything on your heart, on your mind, whatever you're thinking about, go ahead, fire away. Be glad to hear from you. First come, first serve. And uh, yeah, I got a bunch of things on the board here that we're going to be talking about. Um, if you follow along with the community posts, you kind of have an idea of uh, roughly what I'm going to be talking about. One of the things. I scored the treasure trove of treasure troves um, <laughs> regarding Islam. Uh, if you haven't seen those, you're you're go you're in for a good chuckle and a bit of a shock. <laughs> okay, so with that, we're going to be diving into our regular studies of scripture using the biblical method of the Berean the Berean method of studying scripture in its dogmatism what it says is what it means using it as the sharp sword the burning fire and the war hammer as the word of god literally calls itself uh, we see in hebrews uh, we see uh, it talks about it as it is the sword and we see in jeremiah it is a fire and it is a war hammer and we use it as such unashamedly unapologetically what it says is what it means and this is our final authority in all aspects of faith and practice of faith and in everything else and so, when it comes down to understanding what is truth and what is not, how do we hold ourselves accountable to truth? As the title of this one is Doctrinal Accountability. We must be held accountable. People look up to us and hold, it, and hold us accountable to, uh, to be able to be inspirations and teachers and to be able to be the witnesses of Christ. Accountable to what? To what? Our feelings, our opinions, our dreams, our visions, uh, words of knowledge or whatever. Uh, some people consider themselves to be prophets and apostles or whatever. What do they hold themselves accountable to? Because there can only be one absolute authority. That either I'm the authority, in the generic sense of where the, the person is the authority, what they feel, think, dream, whatever, or this is the authority. What are we held accountable to? So in everything that you do, even in eating and drinking, dole to the glory of God, what glorifies God? What glorifies Him? And we go about uh, just however we feel. Now, interestingly, if you have seen the videos in our playlist, I have so many playlists now, uh, Exposing Darkness, the playlist Exposing Darkness, you scroll down uh, a, f a fair ways and you'll see some videos there on Disney and the um, Believe in Yourself videos. Uh, the, one, the one about believe in yourself, let your heart be your guide, let your conscience be your guide. 
Now you watch that video, it's it's rather shocking. As it starts with a guy in a black robe walking out before an audience with this big book and he starts reading from it, and what you don't know is that's actually the satanic church. They say, why would you show that? For for a point, for a reason. And he starts reading out of this book, which actually is a satanic Bible. And he starts reading out of it, and it's absolutely shocking what he's reading about how, about uh, casting off all other authorities and basically being your own authority and follow your heart, believe in your heart, uh, believe in yourself, let your conscience be your guide. The whole the whole teaching right there that is actually Luciferian, where you're the authority, which goes back to Lucifer in the garden. You're a god. You you are your own authority. You are accountable to you. How many times have you heard that? You are accountable to you. And nothing else. Now, that is Luciferian. Where we see in scripture is we are accountable to God. We don't believe in ourselves. I don't believe in myself. I'm a failure. Now I don't believe in myself. You don't believe in yourself. We believe in the Lord. We trust in the Lord. And we look to him as our authority, as our guide, as our wisdom, instruction, and knowledge, and everything. We can't trust ourselves to, to be able to dictate truth. I can't trust myself for one second. I have to trust this. I have to trust the word of God. Visions, dreams, experiences, even angels that come to us. What did, what did the apostles say? If they, if they are contrary to what the word of God says, let them be accursed. So there can only be one rule of authority. There can only be one thing that we are accountable to. Not the pastor, not the denominations, not to anything else, but to the word of God. To the word of God and the word of God alone. Doctrinal accountability. Now, doctrines, the doctrines are the teachings, the specific things that we believe in, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of salvation, the, doc the doctrine of the deity of Christ. These are the fundamentals, which are the, the, the main things that we believe in of the word of God. Doctrinal accountability. And so we are held, uh, we are held uh, uh, under no man. We are not under the authority of any man. We're not under the authority of any denomination. We are under the authority of Scripture and Scripture alone. This is our final absolute authority in all aspects of faith and practice of faith. Not what I think or what I feel. I don't believe in myself or any other writing or any other person or, or group organization or any ritual. I'm only held accountable to the Word of God. So doctrinal accountability. Because... What happens when we don't hold ourselves accountable to the Word of God solely? What happens? Well, we are then open to the whim of anything, as Paul even talks about it, as everyone has a, has a wind of doctrine. Everybody has an idea. Everybody has a say. Everybody has a feeling. Everybody has an opinion. Um, what happens with that? What happens when that's the case? Chaos absolute chaos and you can't trust anything you can't trust anything and like like we see across social media you got the social media prophets they're all contradicting each other they're all contradicting each other 
you take a look at the Catholic popes down down through the centuries, they, they're all psycho. <laughs> they were all nuts. They were all so contradicting uh, of each other. Uh, uh, some of them were, uh, were unbelievably wicked. And you look at the cults. Where everything is open to personal interpretation and everything is just all about self and physicality and materialism. Where you see, like, for example, where Jesus talks about we trust in him and look to him alone. And as, as scripture teaches, he is our sanctification. He is our guide. But what do all the other cults do? They make it about you. Your feelings. Your wealth your happiness your physical kingdom your materialism they make it all about you your works your righteous works your achievements your opinions they make it all about you the cults make it all about self but our lord by the doctrines of his word uh, that of him which cannot lie he says it's all about him it has nothing to do with us it's all about what he has done for us. It's how he holds us. He guides us. He feeds us. He waters us. He teaches us. He is our everything. He is our everything. It has nothing to do with us. Doctrinal accountability is one, one of the most important things that that a Christian could come to grips with. There are, there are many doctrines in Scripture that, is, that we just may not get at the time. But when we come across it, we must believe it anyways, must believe, accept it anyways as truth because God said it. Well, what, what do you mean? You just accept it as true even though you don't understand it? The thing is, if the Bible says it, if the, if the Word of God says it, I don't go then and try to interpret it in such a way that I can grasp it, but rather I, I need to fast and pray and study and keep reading and understanding until I understand how God is saying it. Not how I interpret it. It's how God interprets it. What it says. So if at the time, at the moment, I don't understand, I just keep reading. I, I just... Keep my mind on that and I keep reading because he will explain it. And the Spirit of God will help us to understand. He gives us the understanding and teaches us. He will teach you all things and cause thee to be in remembrance of everything I have told you. He will instruct us. And not to worry, it, it, he will make it clear. It, we just got to be able to put time into it. You see, we want everything now. I want to understand it all now. But learning is a process. When when the when the kids start going to school, do they do they graduate grade grade twelve immediately? No, it takes years, years of learning, years of studying, years of growth, years of knowledge. It's the same thing in studying the Word of God. There are going to be things that we just don't we don't grasp and understand, but we gotta be careful about speeding up the process. Of trying to understand it because that's when we could step into error by cheating and going and angling after what other people believe what they think it means that's why we got to be careful but what if those people that we go after what if they are right 
mean like the Bereans, what they did with the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul came to came to them and taught them, and what did they do? They double-checked him, triple-checked him. We do the same thing. It doesn't matter who it is, what it is, or what's going on. We have to make sure that this is what is holding us in all truth. We are held to this, we, that we are accountable to this, not persons. Not persons, not organizations, not denominations, not other catechisms and commentaries and councils and creeds or anything else. This and this alone. Doctrinal accountability by the word of God and the word of God alone. Not by other sources or other things. What this says. If we don't hold to the word of God as our final sole authority. If we are trying to interpret it through the lens of other sources. We are corrupting this. And it doesn't matter how special, high and holy and famous and powerful and whatever the persons are. If we are interpreting the Bible through the lens of other sources and other people's interpretations, we're corrupting this. This must stand alone. Now, I'm not saying that other sources are not good, or other sources are not important, or that we can't learn from other sources. We can, and absolutely, that they can be great. If they don't contradict this, if they don't go contrary to this. Like, for example, we'll just go back to it. Like anyone trying to tell you that all doesn't mean all, world doesn't mean world, and whosoever doesn't mean whosoever, those people are wrong. All means all, whosoever means whosoever, and world means world. What it says is what it means. Go look it up in the Koine Greek of, of the plain scriptures of what it says. Stop trying to change the meanings of the words to fit other people's interpretations of what they think it means. Uh, because they don't understand the meaning of election. What it says is what it means. All means all. Anyone who tells you it doesn't, is wrong because they are literally changing the very meanings and definitions of the very words of scripture when you go back to the hebrew and greek you see what it says all means all world means world those words are not words of of a specific limited people group but an all-inclusive general word sense we have to see what it says what it means this is our final sole authority anyone trying to add to scripture changing scripture modifying scripture are accursed of God, that, that they are not in line with the word of God. And we have to state it as such. We have to hold to the word of God, what it says. And even if it comes to point, like, for example, the whole election thing, well, I just don't understand it. Well, then we stand on the word of God nonetheless, and we don't modify and compromise the word of God, all because we don't understand election. Well, these people seem to make sense by their arguments by saying all doesn't mean all and world doesn't mean world. But those people are changing the scriptures. Do you not see that? I'm using, just using that as an example argument. So it comes down to everything else. Everything else. And no matter what the topic is, there is an answer to it in the word of God. And our duty is to search it, to dig for hidden treasure. It takes a while to dig. It, you may get the blisters. It, it may develop the, the calluses. You know, it, 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 in blood, sweat, and tears, it takes time to learn. But he will teach you and instruct you if you keep digging, if you keep working. The, the, the process is a pro process that, that uh, talks about laboring in the word of God in prayer. To labor, to work at, to meditate on. It takes time. We got to be patient. 
We have to learn at the process and timing of God's timing and process. Not my clock. God's clock. Maybe he, maybe the, the lesson that you're wanting to learn is not the lesson he wants you to learn at the moment. We have to go as he teaches us. He is the teacher of the classroom, not us. We don't go in the class and say, God, I want to understand this thing right now. And he says, no, wait, I have something else for you right now. We have to go by his process, his timing, his clock of his lessons, of what he says. He will guide us through it. He will give us the answers. He will teach us. He said he would, and he cannot lie. He said he would. So we got to trust his process of his timing. Doctrinal accountability by the word of God and not by any other name or source. If you're going to other books to try to understand the word of God, you are betraying the word of God. Well, how do I learn the Bible? By reading it, by studying it slowly. But, and, and you pair scripture is scripture, rightly divide the word of truth. It does explain itself. Seriously, you can trust it. You can trust it. Think of, think of a, a passage, a doctrine, a teaching, something that come along. Okay, now, what does the Bible say? What does it teach? And you pair scripture with scripture. You pair doctrine with doctrine. Repair theology with theology. And they explain each other. They, they talk about each other. Like, for example, the Olga's question here about sanctification. Is sanctification a process or an event? Well, we take a look at, the, at, the, at what the Bible says about sanctification. What is it? We see that by pairing scripture with scripture, 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer. We see sanctification is learning to be Christ-like. That's walking in Christ. But we see in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he is our sanctification. And then we take the word sanctification and we look it up in the original, uh, in the original Greek. If it's New Testament Greek, Old Testament Hebrew, and we, see, and we see the meaning of the word. And we see with sanctification that is different than consecration. Consecration is salvation. Sanctification is the learning to be Christ-like. Of the walking in Christ and fellowship with Christ, of walking, of walking with him in devotion and prayer and fellowship. So we, then we take a look at 1 Corinthians one thirty. What does it say? He is our sanctification. So then, does sanctification fall on me as something that I have to achieve or maintain? No. If he is our, <clears throat> excuse me, if he is our sanctification, then it has nothing to do with me. Because we see then sanctification is not also is also not a salvationary thing. Because well, you can't lose your salvation because it's not by works. So what is it? so sanctification and how does it work? Love of Christ. It's like when you fall in love with someone. You start learning about them. Do you know everything about them right off the right off the bat, right off the hop? No, you grow in understanding, grow in love, and your your love grows and deepens in time. The same with Christ. You may not know everything about him and everything about doctrine and everything about about uh, Christ's likeness right off the bat, but you grow in it. But it's not something that's on you to have to maintain, though, because this is a covenant, not a contract. 
And it's different because he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he is always forgiving and merciful and helpful and faithful. He is faithful and just. So we see, when we come to the word of God, and we read about different things, and we come across doctrines and theologies, we've got to be careful about seeing, well, there's an interesting thing. I wonder what that means. Don't do that. Don't set the Bible down and grab other books and grab other sources. Pray first. Pray first. Ask the Lord first. Keep reading. Keep reading. It does explain it. And the Spirit of God will teach you. But we are literally telling the Spirit of God to be quiet when we run to other sources. Because we're going to other teachers other than the Spirit of God when we were told that the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. Are we allowing him to be our teacher? No, we're not when we go run and, and go to other sources. When we, when we catechize, if that's a word, if that's a word, catechize that the word of God say, well, this means this, this means this, and this, and it leaves no room for learning, no room for growth. And we allow, uh, we, we allow other people who have tried to set themselves up in, in position of the Holy Spirit as our authorities. It's a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a problem. How then can we grow in faith and grow in understanding and deepen our knowledge of the Word of God when we cheapen it in that way? It's cheapening it. We lose faith in this, that we lose faith that this has an answer for everything because we have literally filled the bookshelf of our mind with other sources. Now, again, it's not wrong to have other sources, but it's wrong to elevate other sources as authorities equal to the word of God. Doctrinal accountability. By what standard? Who is the authority? What is the final authority? People say, well, the Bible's final authority, but they don't treat it as that. They say that, but in the same moment, they're running to other things. And they immediately start quoting uh, the fathers of Reformation, other names and other books and other things and other catechisms. They say it, but they don't actually believe it. They don't actually believe it. And they change the word of God to fit denominational distinctives, to fit catechisms, to fit other writings and other, other people. But what it says is what it means. And why are we second guessing God? Why are we proofreading God? Why do we do that? We're trying to proofread it to see to try to see if there there's uh, things that could be corrected, and that's what many people do. They try to correct the word of God by the opinions of men, and that's just wrong. That's just wrong. That's just straight up wrong. That's what the cults do. That's what the cults do. They add, change, modify, and and and, uh, and fix the word of God to fit their own personal standard. That's what cults do. Can Christians do that? Yes, all the time. All the time. So, are you saying then that all that literally all I need is the Bible? Yes. Yes. 
You don't, you don't need other sources. You don't need it. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's not important or that you can't use it. Well, because, for example, I, 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 from time to time, will go take a look and see Matthew Henry's commentary. You see, what does he have ha, happen to have to say on, on this topic? But I'm not holding him as a source authority. Because we see in the, in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. But again, what this says is the final authority. And if Matthew Henry happens to say something, even remotely, that kind of is contrary, contradictory, or whatever with what the Bible flat out says in and of itself, if it seems to be off, then, then okay, never mind that. Let's see what the what is, whatever the Bible says, that's enough. But again, we got to be careful about then allowing that the one who does the the writing of the authority who one who dictates the dic, uh, the the dictatorial work of the word of god whoever dictates to me the truth be allowing it to be someone else other than the spirit of god by the word of god and the word of god alone not by visions and dreams and experiences but by written doctrine what is written it is written it is written it is written that's all i need to remember it is written it is written well, what's the answer to this? It is written. It's just time for me to go look for it. So, just some thoughts on that one. Uh, I hope that makes sense. If you have any comments, questions on that, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. we got a bunch more stuff to talk about regarding that kind of thing. So, um, <clears throat> please go ahead, ask away. Okay. Um... It's going down through here. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How's it going? How's it going? So again, to come back to Olga's question about sanctification, is it a process or an event? Both. How do you like them apples? It's both. Uh, because as we see that 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus Christ is our sanctification. Because I have no righteousness of my own. I have no goodness of my own. I have no ability of my own he is my righteousness he is my goodness he is everything that is good in me because i have none of myself he is my goodness so as he is my all in all in in consecration and sanctification i grow in understanding of his sanctification the process is my learning and grasp of his sanctification of me that makes sense so it's actually both all right olga says um i'm saved so everything is well with me the rest doesn't matter it, it, it exactly that's the thing is i don't have to worry about it i don't have to worry i don't have to worry about my salvation because it's assured in christ because i have believed i don't have to worry about anything else because he will teach me he will convict me. He will help me. He will show me where to go. I don't need to worry about where to go. It's like drive. drive it's like driving for uh, down the road for a road trip. You don't have a map. You don't have a GPS. When you, well, I don't know where to go. Where am I supposed to turn? Don't even worry about it. He's right there. He will tell you where to turn. He will tell you when to stop, where to go, where to turn, what to do. He'll, he will show you. Don't need to worry about it. Relax. That's what it means by be still. Worry not, fear not, fret not. 
he is our everything he is our he's our consecration he's our sanctification he is our redemption he's our help our our forgiveness he's our everything he's our wisdom our knowledge he's our everything don't need to worry about it he is our answer he's our answer he has an answer for everything we just got to learn to sit at his feet be still and listen all right horse has a question is job the book of job the oldest book of the bible if so why is it so far in the back all right now according to the scholars it's been actually been a long time since i've actually looked at this one so i'm kind of going off of what i can remember about it um but as we know moses did not live in the time of adam right moses did not live before the flood moses was long after noah moses in his time uh, uh, uh his time frame an awful lot of stuff happened before him. moses however was chosen by god as Moses, the prophet of God, God chose Moses to be the writer of the first five books of the Bible, uh, uh, of uh, giving a record, uh, chose Moses to be the writer as God dictated to him, told him what to write, and, and Moses wrote down the events uh, of what happened from the beginning of everything right up to the end of Deuteronomy. Moses also wrote a couple of the Psalms. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so Moses wrote the order, the sequence of events of things that happened. However, from what they've been able to gather, and I don't know how they figure it. I'm not that kind of a person, but they have been able to figure out that Job though, Job itself was written earlier than the times of when Moses wrote the first five books. So as an actual writing, Job is older, but the sequence of events that Moses wrote is prior. That is pre uh, the time of Job. So around what time did Job live? I'm not sure. I don't really remember that one. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, but uh, as an actual writing, Job is considered the oldest book of the Bible. But as per sequence of events, now this is where they kind of go in more of an order in that way. And that'd be uh, the books that Moses wrote because of what it addresses of the content. So yeah, hope that answers your question. Okay, so Mary says, I know we are saved, but how do you say, but how do you save those who you love? But don't believe or even worse think they believe but don't read study the bible okay um <clears throat> we don't save we have no power on that um all that we are required to do our sole responsibility is to proclaim the gospel of jesus christ and pray for those that have heard so what we do is we 
we plant the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, like when you're planting a garden, you plant the seed. And then what you do is you water it with prayer. If you neglect the watering, the seed will dry up, it will die. It needs water, it needs tending, it needs to, it needs the the uh, the 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 uh, fertilizer it needs the water it needs it needs all the care so we do the same thing it is we see that the the fertilizer of of kindness and christ likeness to to be able to uh, to show them the demonstration of the faith and then the water of prayer so we do is we show them the power of it through our actions and our prayer so we plant the seed by explaining it to them and then we show them we demonstrate it and we we try we try to uh, draw them with the christ likeness and especially with prayer we pray for their soul we pray that the lord would protect them we pray that the lord would put a hedge of protection around them so that the enemy wouldn't be able to uh, come and take away that seed which was sown and the more we put into it the better the chances of the growth but at the same time at the same time it is on them if they are unwilling, if they have a hardened heart and are not willing to listen, the Spirit of God hands them over to that. The Spirit of God does not force it against your will. Because if you are refusing it, I know some people say, well, that's heresy, what you're just saying there. No, 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 the Bible actually says it in Hebrews 6, 4-6. Hebrews 6, 4-6, if you reject it, if you reject it, you're casting away uh, the, the, the light of the gospel. You're casting away the glimpse. You're re refusing the enlightenment. And you damn yourself in that. You harden your heart. But it doesn't mean that's the end if they're refusing reject it, because down the road, they might soften it down the road. It may take time. It could take hours, days, weeks, months, years. It all depends. And that's where the Bible says for us to faint not faint not faint not in prayer to never quit never give up is it, it takes time it takes time some plants grow real fast real fast some take a long time like the difference between a, between a little vegetable garden like you're growing beans or tomatoes or whatever versus growing an oak tree oak trees grow very very slow takes a long time so we got to be patient we got to be patient and we got to trust the lord in his timing his goodness and we need to uh, uh, plead for their souls in prayer and fast and pray for their souls in prayer H how much you care for them that that how much you care about them getting saved will show in how much time you give in prayer and fasting so yeah all right so again, folks, uh, this is a, just a bit of a special broadcast, and normally we do our regular Bible studies, but we're doing a bit of a midweek Bible study slash Q&A, as I'm going to be gone for two weeks. This is this is my last broadcast until I get back from vacation. So this is, if you got anything, anything you'd like to talk about, throw it out now, or you'll have to hold for two weeks. So this is the last broadcast till I get back. So I'll be back on June 10th. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see how it goes uh, on the uh, Saturday the 11th. I might be broadcasting or on uh, 
the following Monday. We'll, we'll see how it goes. So let's hand it out, hand that over to the Lord. So if you got anything you want to talk about now, get it off your chest because I'm going to be gone for two weeks. All right. So uh, similarly, in talking about these kinds of things, about doctrinal accountability, um, th- there's something I want to kind of share with you folks. I, I hope I can word this correctly. I hope you understand me when I'm talking about this. My personal stance on the word of God is as a biblical purist, biblical literalist, that what it says is what it means from Genesis to Revelation. As you understand that, I've talked about that before. And everything in the word of God is 100% true. It happened just like it says. Now, with that said, the way I try to approach things as well is that everything is spiritual. Every single thing has an effect on us spiritually, affects us spiritually, and we can affect it spiritually. You see, too much, there's too much relying on physicality, materialism, and everything. As people go with, try to have physical, physical material explanations for literally everything. Everything that goes on. We, we walk and talk and think and eat and drink and entertain ourselves physically, materially, in everything. But the Word of God teaches us that everything is spiritual. In everything that you do, even in eating and drinking, do to the glory of God. That, that verse right there is that where the Lord is in your thoughts in everything. That the spiritual is in your thoughts of everything everything from from the good times to the bad times to from school to work to lunch to dinner breakfast sleep being awake our entertainment your very thoughts are spiritual and are affected spiritually and can be affected spiritually illnesses health everything is affected spiritually everything has a spiritual component word of God teaches it and I think that that in of itself is a bit of a bit of, of part and parcel to the downfall of Christianity today as you see the church is so weakened is so 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 weak because this principle of spirituality has been lost so many Christians don't think spiritually They don't look for the spiritual component first. They run to the doctor first when it's anything health related. They run to the pharmacy first if if it's anything else. They they run to the grocery store first. They run run to other books and other sources, other things. And they they run to physicality and materialism first before they run to God. They don't go and pray and ask the Lord first. They don't seek his wisdom, his knowledge first. They don't even give God a chance mostly you don't give god a chance but when we see in scripture the lord is pleading for us to die to self to forsake all 
follow him, to look to him, his counsel, his wisdom, his guidance and everything, that if it is something that is to be physical, he will tell you. He will tell you to go to the doctor. He'll tell you to go to the pharmacy, the grocery store, or wherever else. So he'll show you what other book or source or person or thing. Or he'll show you where to go, what to do, what to say. He will guide you in all things. Do we let him? How do we let him guide us in all things? By asking him first. By asking him first. By seeking his face first. See, we are so ADD driven. <laughs> we need an answer now. We don't have time to wait on God. Sorry, Jesus, I don't have time for you. Oh, but that's what we do. We rush God. We try to rush an answer. We try to rush guidance. We try to rush his wisdom. But we see that we're not even supposed to have a say in that, but rather, like the disciples, like Mary, we sit at his feet. We are his students. He doesn't bend to our whim. We, we don't say, God, can, give me an answer now. But rather we take what it is, say, Lord, this is what is going on. Can, can you teach me about this? Can you give me guidance and wisdom in this? And then we sit down, shut up, and wait. He will answer. But how long are we supposed to wait? Until he gives an answer. The student waits on the teacher, not the other way around. I know in our spoiled, rotten society today, the student demands the teacher, but that's just the corrupted society of a, of a corrupted generation. On the word of God, we wait on him. We don't try to interpret him. He gives us the interpretation. He gives us the counsel, the wisdom. He gives us the understanding. He is our authority. He is our everything. He is our all in all. Everything is spiritual and is to be spiritual. Living by faith, walking by faith. You see, those that refuse to, those that refuse to walk by faith, those that refuse to make everything spiritual, to deliberately look for the spiritual component in everything, those that refuse to do that are the cessationists. Those who deny that miracles and supernatural signs and wonders and, and all that kind of stuff happen today. Th those that don't believe in, in praying in faith, believing in faith, and believing that the Lord will answer them by faith. Because they themselves try to be God. They, they It becomes deism. Where God is up there, and he's way up there, but he's so high and above me, I have to do everything. It's, I believe there is a God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in all that, but now... I basically live like God in my life, and I do everything, I achieve everything, I have to control and figure out everything myself. Because he's so high above me, he's not involved with me. I say he is, but I don't really believe he is, and I don't really act like he is. Is it deism, or is it Christianity? We see what the Lord says about everything, that everything is spiritual. We need to treat everything spiritually. Every single thing has a spiritual component, even a glass of water. A glass of water has a spiritual component. It affects us spiritually, and we can affect it spiritually. Everything, everything is spiritually connected. 
We give it all to the Lord. We thank him for everything. We bless him about everything. And we involve him in everything, even in eating and drinking a glass of water. Even the Lord talked about the glass of water as how blessed it is and how it's Christ-like and, and how we show the mercies of God by giving a glass of cool water to a thirsty man. But what if that thirsty person's us? What does that teach us about the Lord? Well, when you're drinking on a hot day and you grab that glass of cold water and you take that sip and just that refreshing, what Bible verses, what promises, what blessings, what similar principles and doctrines and theologies and, and characters of God, what comes to mind? How the Lord refreshes us, how the Lord helps us. It teaches us, it helps us, it draws us closer to him. Even a glass of water. Everything is spiritual. Everything has a spiritual component. Make everything spiritual. Whenever someone comes to you about anything, immediately look for the spiritual component. If it's a problem or if it's a blessing, it doesn't matter what it is, nothing is excused. Turn everything spiritual. Look for the spiritual in everything. This is how we draw closer to him. This is how we can grow quicker in sanctification this is how we can deepen our grasp of scripture because in everything we turn everything spiritually what we are automatically doing is bringing scripture into it what does the bible say about it what does the bible say about everything everything what does the bible say about cleaning when you go to clean your house go look it up where in the Bible, what does it say about cleanliness? What does it teach about that? What does it teach about a glass of water? What does it teach about food? What does it teach about different kinds of food? What does it teach about eating and drinking? What does it teach about talking and thinking and walking? What does it teach about fellowship and, and devotion? What does it teach about having fun? What does it teach about entertainment? What does it teach about birds? Look for scripture in everything. Look for the spiritual in everything. And when you do that, watch what happens to you. Watch what happens. Watch how the Lord starts to work in you even that much more. Because now you're taking the faith seriously. Now you are seriously trying to apply the faith. Now you're taking God seriously. Now you're beginning to understand. The, physic the physicality is nothing. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 6. About the, about the lilies and the flowers. How, how, how even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothed the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? If he will care for the birds and the fish, how much more will he care for you? So what we see is not what it is. Judging after the appearance. It's not, it's not about the physicality. It's not about the materialism. It's not about my feelings, but rather it's about how I can walk with God in everything. You know, like for example, I like gathering different kinds of rocks and minerals and things. And this one's really neat. This one's carved, carved up like a little marble. Now this is a bloodstone. A really, really neat one. But it looks like a planet. It is so cool. It kind of looks like a planet. But how many times when I grab this, every time I look at it, 
I see, see, like, kind of my imagination, like, the size of my hand to it. I think about, you know, that's like God holding the earth. And how he, how God made the earth. And I see on here what looks like land. I see on here what looks like water or whatever. And use your imagination. Just how small and insignificant we are. We're ants. Less than ants. Compared to him. But yet, but yet. Scripture says he condescends down to us, uh, us of such lowest state. He came down to us, the fellowship with us, the almighty God who just spoke and the universe came into existence. He just spoke and made the birds. He just spoke and made all the plants. And now he just wants to experience these things with us to walk with us to, to be a part of our enjoyment of what he has done what he has put together to enjoy and revel in the thoughts that he gives us the understanding the enlightenments that he gives us he wants to be a part of the oh wow moments he wants to be a part of even the grief jesus wept he wants to be a part of all of our emotions, of all of our experiences, of everything we do. He wants to be in everything, in everything that ye do. God is saying, I want to be a part of it. Will you invite me? Does God need our permission? N no, but he's a gentleman. God is gentle. He will not force himself on you. But he asks will you walk with me will you follow me will you follow me we don't follow people we follow god we follow his word we follow his opinion his thoughts we follow his spirituality his spirituality we follow his thinking his logic his reasoning of everything god is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth and thusly we turn everything spiritual god's spirituality we look for the lord in everything look for ways to please the lord to walk with the lord to obey the lord in everything even if it's a cup of cool water think of the mustard seed such simple thing such a little thing it says says if we had faith like a grain of mustard seed but i want to i want more than that i'm not content with just a mustard seed i want more than that you see we get so focused on the mustard seed we don't think of, think of the possibility well what what if have we have more than that what a, what would happen if we had a mountain of faith What would happen if we had a mountain of faith? Well, how can our faith grow? How can we learn to have more faith? Well, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's spiritual. 
faith is spiritual. But when we're so content with just physicality and materialism, our faith won't grow. If we're not looking for the spiritual in everything, our faith won't grow. If we're not looking for the spiritual in everything, our understanding of scripture is going to be quite limited. Because we're going to be trying to read and understand and interpret the Bible through a physical material lens when the book is a spiritual book. This is a spiritual book, not just a physical material. Yes, it has teachings and, and, and all kinds of wisdom and power for the physical, for the material, but it's meant for the spiritual. So how can we grow in faith? How can we grow in spirituality? Simply, firstly, by bringing the Lord into everything. Well, how do I do that? Look for a biblical application for everything. You know, one thing I like to do as kind of a uh, an exercise in this one thing I like to do is when I'm watching a movie, it doesn't matter what movie it is. It doesn't matter what it is. I kind of, in my mind while I'm watching it, I'll put myself in it, in, in the film, and I'll think, okay, what would I, as a servant of the Lord, actually do? How would I react to this? How would I honestly, sincerely react to this if this, if I was in this, if this was happening to me, think about it. It's interesting what happens. It changes your perception of things. It changes it, it changes, because we'd say, "Well, I would just do this." No, 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 no. Stop saying I would do this. Stop saying that. Start saying, "The Lord would tell me to do this." Remove yourself from the equation. Stop saying, well, I'd react to this. I would just do this. I would just do that. I would just give this. No, 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 no. Stop saying I. Stop saying he. Start saying he. He would tell me to do this. He would guide me to this. Say, well, well how would I know what the Lord would tell me to do? Start reading it. Start applying it. Start looking for the spiritual application in everything. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And when you start to believe that, when you start to grasp that, your prayers change. And you start seeing more answers to prayer. Well, why would you start seeing more answers to prayer? Because if you waver in faith, if you doubt, if you doubt the answer, if you doubt God, if you waver in faith, you'll receive nothing of God. That's what it says. That's what it says. So how can I learn not to waver, not to doubt? Well, see, here's the thing. As everything is spiritual, the flesh doesn't understand it. The flesh, which is corrupted by sin, doesn't understand that. And the flesh will always doubt, and you can't actually stop the flesh from doubting. You can't stop the doubts. You can't stop the worrying of the flesh. But in your heart, in your spirit, you know what it says. You know what the truth is. This is where you choose. You hold fast to the spiritual truth regardless of what the flesh says. 
The flesh will doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt, but you know, you and you keep trusting in the Spirit, the Spirit of God, that gives you the answer. The Spirit of God says, this is what is true. And your flesh is like, well, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? But this is what I said. But what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? But this is what I said. You trust in what is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. You trust in the Spirit of God. Everything is spiritual. The Spirit of God affects everything. The Spirit of God can make the jar of oil not run out today. The Spirit of God can make water come from the rock today. He, the Spirit of God is what answers our prayers. He's what gives us the understanding. He teaches us. He guides us. He provides. He is the answer. He's the one that opens the eyes of the blind. He's the one that raises the dead. He is the miracle worker. He's the teacher. He's the redeemer. He's the helper. The Spirit of Christ is our all in all. Everything is spiritual because we look to the Spirit of Christ in everything, of everything, for everything. It doesn't matter what it is. We need to learn to let go of the flesh. The flesh lusts against itself. And the flesh lusts after things that are against God. Don't listen to flesh. Don't listen to the physical. Don't listen to the material. The physical world is putty that is molded by praying faith. The Spirit of God can move the mountains, move the trees, part the sea. The Spirit of God does it all. Do you not believe that he can? We trust in the Lord and we look to the spiritual in everything, of everything. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Opening a door is spiritual. Because what are the applications? What are the principles? What are the teachings? What are the doctrines? How does God picture himself as the door? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything that you do. Opening a door, driving a car, going for a walk, drinking a glass of water. Turn it spiritual. Bring the Lord into it. Remember him in everything, of everything, for everything. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God. If you love me, follow me, Jesus says. How can I follow him in everything that you do? Do all to the glory of God in everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God. If you love me, keep my commandments. What are his commandments? Remember me. Walk with me abide in me always if ye abide in me and my words abide in you then ask what you will and it shall be done unto you how can i do that by turning everything spiritual turning everything spiritual because everything is spiritual what is spiritual the realm of god that which is not this if all you see is this, then where is the Lord? If all you see and feel and experience is this, then where is God? How can you say you love the Lord if you're not looking for him? Look past the physical. Look past it. The problem that is before you is not the reality. God could snap his fingers, blink his eyes, and it'd be gone and done and be changed. Do you not believe that? Stop looking at what is before you and start looking past it. Start looking through it. Start looking to the other side of the Red Sea. Keep your eyes on Christ. You walk on water. Peter. 
You look to the trust of God and the jar of oil and the barrel of meal does not run out. You trust to him which is the resurrection and the life and Lazarus comes walking out of the grave. You look to the Lord for your salvation because it has nothing to do with me. I like the funny meme I saw. It says, you can't even control your hiccups and you really think you can control your salvation. Look past the physical. It's all about him. It's all about him. Turn everything spiritual. Spirituality has lost its meaning with modern Christianity. Spirituality is, has, has, they've redefined it to be physical, traditional relig religiosity. No, no. It's not about the me, it's not about the doing, but rather it's all about the him. We say it. We'll say amen to all of this. But saying it and doing it are two different things. Saying it and practicing it are two different things. Practicing spirituality. What does that mean to us? What does that mean to us? Like the word mysticism has been changed. I did a video on this a while back. Mysticism, we hear that word and we immediately think of like the Hindu mystics and the, the esotericism and all that kind of nonsense garbage. But the word mysticism, meaning the word mystic, it means simply as the belief that there that there is a God, belief that you can have relationship with God, belief that there is more than the physical reality, belief that there is hidden mysteries that, that, that can be attained by relationship with God. That's what it means. That's literally what it means, the word mystic. Mysticism, the great, the great mystery of understanding the mystery of godliness, understanding the mysteries of God, understanding the character of God, being in a relationship with the Lord. People don't understand that and mean the moment you say mystic or mysticism, they immediately think you've gone nuts. Those, those are people who don't study words and study the meanings of things. But what does it mean? I'm looking at the, at the actual definition. I don't need to call myself or title myself or, or any of that kind of thing. It's irrelevant. I don't need titles. I don't need anything. I just need him. But I look, look at things that will help me to understand biblical, born-again, Christian, mystic spirituality. A.W. Tozer has a lot, of, a lot of writings on this. And E.M. Bounds and Charles Spurgeon a lot of writings on this. Uh, understanding how to put the Lord first in the mindfulness of Christ. Christ mindfulness. Of walking with him, in him, in all things, in everything that you do. When you cut off a piece of bread for breakfast, when you put your bread in the toaster, you butter your bread. Where did it come from? You know, the Lord gave that to you. Do you thank him for it, honestly, sincerely? Or do you forget about him? kind of apathetic of him and you, you've been around him so much you kind of grown accustomed to it and then you don't really talk to each other much or is a loving close intimate relationship he stands right by your side while you're making it do you feel him do you know him do you talking with him is he there he is there are you aware 
Christ mindfulness in all things. Watch what happens to your devotions, to your prayer life. Watch what happens to your witnessing and evangelism. Watch what happens in your life when you start taking the faith so seriously that you look for the spiritual component in everything. What do you enjoy doing? What are your hobbies, your interests? What do you like doing? How can you do that with him in real time? In real time, in the very moment, going for a walk, bike ride, going for a run, doing your exercises, gardening, cleaning the house, doesn't matter what to do in the laundry, <laughs> doing your homework, helping the kids, going shopping, driving the car, doesn't matter what it is, doing the bills, doesn't matter what it is. Are you talking to him? Is he a part of it? Are you seeking his wisdom, his counsel, his guide, his help? This is what it means. This is what it means. It's not a difficult thing. It's not hard. It's just, do you really want to? Comes, it honestly comes down to if you really want to or don't want to. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. If you want to, you will. Because your flesh will war you against in this and against this constantly. Your flesh does not want to bring the Lord into everything. The flesh wants it to be about you. The flesh is demonic. Because the flesh wants you to be your own God, your own authority. You are in control. You call the shots. The flesh wants you to be God. But will you surrender to him which is? Will you surrender to the Lord? And it's not about me. And it's not about me uh, trying to earn brownie points to keep him as such. No, he is Lord. I don't have to make him Lord. He is Lord. It's just, will I acknowledge this? Will I acknowledge him as Lord in everything? Because I want him to be. Because I love him. Spirituality. Everything is spiritual. You ever go for a walk and stop for a moment, look at the ground and see the ants? What does the Bible say about ants? It's that simple. What does the word of God say about everything? It has something to say about everything. Have you looked for it? Do you understand it? Have you read it? Are you mindful of it? Look for the principles in everything. Turn everything spiritual. Watch what happens. All right. Okay, Olga says, A lot of Christians I know say that demons are a metaphor and are not real. Those people are stupid. <laughs> Sorry, I know, I know. I shouldn't speak evil of any man, but that's dumb. Because the Bible literally says it. Um, it's not a metaphor. Angels aren't a metaphor. Demons are not a metaphor. They're literal beings. Angels and demons are literal beings. The Bible says it. And the very language, the very meanings of the words in the Bible regarding them is literal beings, not metaphorical language. Um, those are people who don't want to believe that they're real because they want to believe that it can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, and that's dumb. Uh, 
the demonic realm is 100% literal. Uh, <laughs> frankly, what I would tell those people is go say, say that to some witches and occultists and some voodoo practitioners. Watch what happens. Uh, metaphors are going to materialize to you. Metaphors are going to start taking over your life and walking the halls and moving furniture. Metaphors are going to start showing up in your life and you're going to realize it's not a metaphor. Yeah, those people don't know what they're talking about. Um, okay, Olga says, Why was John the Baptist so obsessed with the king? If our nation leaders live immoral lives, does that have an effect on the nation? Oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, the reason that John the Baptist uh, was so involved in, and uh, uh, so taken with all of that is because that was his job. That's what the prophets do. That the the prophets, the servants of God, called of God as the the evangelists, the teachers, the missionaries, the preachers of God. Their job is to hold everyone accountable to the word of God, and that includes the unsaved. It doesn't matter who it is. Apostle Paul did the same thing with Nero. That's our job. Is that everyone is to be told, everyone is to be warned, everybody is to be preached to, everybody is to have the word word of God applied to them. Nobody's excused. And Herod had sinned and and had uh, gone against the Lord against the Lord's instruction, and he needed to be told and warned. He had he was told to repent and get himself right with God, and he didn't like that and arrested him and later on chopped his head off. But uh, but yeah, as we see all down throughout the scriptures, the prophets would go and tell all kinds of people. When Jonah went to the Gentile Nineveh, we see some prophets going to other kings and warning them. Uh, and that's also one thing that's missing today is Christians holding the world accountable to the word of God. And going out and preaching it, declaring it, telling people they need to repent and believe in the Lord. They need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you imagine if we had Christians who were so bold and full of the Spirit of God, they went and uh, and held their rulers and governments accountable? Could you imagine what would happen? We'd start seeing a lot more revivals. We'd start seeing a lot, lot more impact upon this world. Because we see Christians taking the faith seriously. Nobody's excused. And yes, when rulers are wicked, they'll develop a wicked nation. The, the nation follows the rulers. Actually, no, 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 no. The wicked nation is awarded what it deserves. The people reject the Lord. They appoint their own rulers. We see that in Amos. The Amos. No, it's not Amos. Forget where it is. Forget where it is. It it um it says they have set up kings, but not by me. They have established princes, and I knew it not. Meaning they have gone and established their own rulers. Like for example, we see in the Old Testament, the people rejected Samuel the prophet, and they wanted a king instead. 
They didn't want the Lord to be their king. They wanted a physical king that, like all the nations. They wanted to be like the rest of the world. And they, they set up Saul, King Saul, instead of waiting on the Lord where they would have got King David. Saul was the people's choice. The people chose and established their ruler. So the rulers we get are a reflection of society. There is a reflection of, the, of society. So, yeah, so what uh, what uh, John the Baptist was doing is he's preaching to the people, then he went and warned the king, and what happened to him was, was society's reaction upon the word of God. We saw society's reaction upon Jesus. We saw society's reaction against the prophets in the Old Testament. We see society's reaction against the church today. But yeah, the reason why John the Baptist did that is because, well, that was his job. All right. Okay, Olga says, which is worse, Sodom and Gomorrah or today's society? Um, well, I don't know what the first person, what uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was like, but um, you get kind of an idea when society is so, so wicked, you literally can't go outside at night without having roving bands of that that would take you and do horrible, wicked, abominable things to you. It's literally too dangerous to go outside because this kind of immorality is so raging rampant and it's so bad that when angels of God come down and strike you blind, you're still scrabbling on the doors because you want to rape the angels. That's how bad it was. Um, I don't think it's that bad yet, but it's getting there. Okay. Um, Olga says, why did Jesus say when we're... Two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. Isn't he omnipresent? Oh, he is. He is. But what he's what he's talking about is the is following him and serving him. As you see, the Lord sent out the disciples by twos and threes. This is the order of God. This is what he said to do. So that because you encourage each other and uphold each other and you hold each other up and you, you help each other in the work. Where two or three are gathered in my midst, and he sent the disciples up in twos and threes. And, and this is the, the, the flow down this uh, for us today, that wherever two or three are gathered, for what purpose? Fellowship, service, worship. We encourage each other, help each other. He is right there in the midst of this. And he's encouraging, he's blessing this service, blessing this work, blessing uh, this following of his commandments. Um, yes, you can still serve the Lord even by yourself. But it's even that much more blessed. It's much more blessed where the, where you're gathering twos or threes and even more. It's just uh, following the instruction of him of going out and serving him. And that his hand is upon this and he will help you. Um, and why two or three? Why not five or ten? Why not just one? Because he said two or three. That's what he said. We see Paul would go out and he'd often have someone else with him. Did he, did he have to have someone else with him? No, but it's a great help as we as we see the, the teaching of as iron sharpens iron, so the countenance of his brother, sharp, uh, one sharpens his brother. 
Um, we sharpen each other, help each other, we uphold each other. Um, we have always seen throughout Scripture that uh, of the of the the accompaniment, helping each other. See Elijah and Elisha. Uh, we see Samuel and, and his servant. We see Paul and one of the other disciples. There's always a second or a third. And Moses and Aaron, all the way down through. Okay. Um, all right. So with that, I'm going to move on to something here uh, that I came across. <laughs> um, this was a treasure trove of treasure troves. Now I had discovered one of these things myself before. Uh, regarding Islam. Now, so many people are unaware of what Islam is really like, uh, what it teaches. Um, and for the record, I have studied Islam a fair bit. I would not say I'm an expert. I would say David Wood, uh, uh, Acts 17 Apologetics. He, he is an expert in that. And he has a lot of knowledge in this stuff. Um, but I personally read a fair fair bit about Islam. I have personally debated Muslim imams. I have personally debated Muslim clerics. I've debated uh, from all the way from the clergy to the lay people in Islam. Uh, tons and tons and tons and tons of them I've debated and and uh, I've I've studied their doctrinal statements, uh, the things that they believe, and. I have read large portions uh, of uh, Islamic teaching uh, from the Quran, and this is what they believe. Um, <laughs> if you want to see these, I put them up in the YouTube community. I, I these posts, you can go look at it and you can read it yourself in the YouTube community. Um, but <laughs> Muhammad was a cross-dresser. <laughs> from the Sahih collection of Al-Bukhari, Hadith number 2442, I quote, She told that the people used, used to choose Aisha's day to bring their gifts, seeking thereby to please God's messenger. She said that God's messenger's wives were in two parties, one including Aisha, Hafsa, Safiya, and Sada, and the other including Um Salah, Salama and the rest of God's messengers' wives. Um, Salama's party spoke to her, telling her to ask God's messenger to, to say to the people, if anyone wishes to make a present to God's messenger, let him present it to him wherever he happens to be. She did so, and he replied, Do not annoy me regarding Aisha, for inspiration, revelation, has not come to me when I was in any woman's garment but Aisha's. <laughs> You realize Aisha was Muhammad's child bride? Muhammad loved to sit around wearing Aisha's garments, waiting for inspiration from his God. That his God would give him teaching and instruction when he would sit around wearing women's garments. That's literally what 
the Sahih collection of Al-Bukhari Hadith number 2442 of Islam's teaches. But wait, there's more. <laughs> um, Muhammad blessed the drinking of his urine. The Hafiz Abu Yala stated that Muhammad Abu Bakr al mukim whatever, I can't say his old name, related to him, quoting Salim Kutaybah, uh, uh, I don't know how to say their names, from, uh, okay, let's go down, I can't remember, pronounce their names. The messenger of God had a pottery bowl into which he would urinate. When morning came, he would call out, Um, Amen, pour out the contents of the pot. One night I got up feeling thirsty and drank what it contained. And when the messenger of God called out, Um, Amen, pour out the contents of the pot, I replied, Messenger of God, I got up feeling thirsty and drank what was in it. He commented, You will never suffer from your stomach. But wait, there's more. Drinking Muhammad's blood saves you from hellfire. From Ash Shaifa by Kadi Yad by Gihan Abdel Ruf Hiba, 2009, page 80. Malik bin Sanan on the day of Uhud battle drank and sucked the blood of the prophet and therein the prophet permitted him and said you will be spared from hellfire i.e you will be admitted to paradise because he drank the blood of the prophet <sighs> but wait there's more the history of al-tabiri by Michael Fishbane, 1997, volume 8, page 77. <laughs> Muhammad's phlegm was used as face and body lotion. Erwa began looking at the companions of the prophet. By God, he said, if the prophet coughs up a bit of phlegm and it falls onto the hand of one of them, he rubs his face and skin with it. If the prophet is near you talking to you and spit and phlegm flies out and lands on your hand, you're to rub it on your face. <laughs> But wait, there's more. <laughs> Sunan and Nisai, the Book of Purification, Hadith 307. <laughs> it was narrated from Anas bin Malik that some Bedouins from Urania came to the Prophet and became Muslims, but the climate of Al-Medina did not suit them. Their skin turned yellow and their stomachs became swollen. The Messenger of Allah sent them to some pregnant camels of his and told them to drink their milk and urine until they recovered. Muhammad taught the drinking of camel urine. 
<laughs> so he, he would love to wear women's clothes to get inspiration and he he told his followers to drink his urine drink his blood and rub his snot on their faces and drink camel urine that's some profit <laughs> you see when you reject god when you reject the word of god you become your own sole authority. You go so crazy as that, or believing you can talk to tree spirits, or that rocks and crystals can fix your auras, or the moonlight can purify you, or you can become your own god. You can save yourself. You can atone for your own sins, and all kinds of other crazy nonsense. Or you can become reincarnated as a cow or a cockroach. When you don't hold the word of God as a final soul authority, and you start angling after other people's thinkings, you start changing the very meanings of the words of the Bible, where you say that the word world doesn't mean world, all doesn't mean all. You see how far it goes. Insanity and chaos. Insanity and chaos. Insanity and chaos reigns. When the word of God is not the final sole authority. Let alone, like, for example, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland, Todd White, Joyce Myers, all believe the same thing that is taught but as we see here where they literally believe um like for example here i'll read it the recreation on the cross doctrine of the word of faith charismatic movement the recreation on the cross doctrine by the word of faith charismatic movement where they literally believe that when jesus was on the cross now, this is from the book, uh, Christianity in Crisis by uh, Hank Hanegraaff. He used to be good back when this was written. He used to be really good. But when he got older, he went a bit senile and weird. And and uh, Hank Hanegraaff converted to orthodoxy and all that. I believe he's a Christian. He's just He just got deceived. He used to be really good and really trustworthy and really solid. But he went all nuts. But in his earlier writing here, a writing about the Word of Faith movement, the Charismatic movement, and exposing the heresy and stuff, and uh, showing you their quotes, their beliefs, their doctrines of the Word of Faith Charismatic movement, unbelievable. They personally believe, the Word of Faith Charismatic movement personally believes, they believe, they are taught by the vast majority of the leaders of the Word of Faith Charismatic movement, they believe that Jesus became a twisted, satanic creature on the cross. That when, that when Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross, he became a twisted, satanic creature. Now, here is a quote from Benny Hinn. Quoting from Benny Hinn. Ladies and gentlemen, the serpent is a symbol of Satan. Jesus Christ knew the only way he would stop Satan is by becoming one in nature with Satan. 
you say what did you say what blasphemy is this no you hear this he did not take my sin he became my sin sin is the nature of hell sin is what made satan it was sin that made satan jesus said i'll be sin i'll go to the lowest place i'll go to the origin of it i won't just take part in it i'll be the totality of it when jesus became sin he took it from a to z and said no more think about this he became flesh that flesh might become like him he became death so dying man can live he became sin so sinners can be righteous in him he became he became one with the nature of satan so all those who had the nature of satan can partake in the nature of god benny hinn literally said jesus became one in nature with satan he be jesus became satan on the cross think about that one just for a moment now if you would like to know a bit more of the idea of that go look at todd white's one of his recent videos he did a couple months ago uh where, where todd white is on stage saying jesus became a pedophile on the cross todd white says jesus became a satan worshiper on the cross todd white says jesus became a fornicator on the cross yeah and kenneth copeland says the same thing that jesus became a dark twisted satanic demonic creature on the cross kenneth copeland says that joyce meyer says the same thing what happens what happens when this is not your final absolute soul authority you don't study this you don't allow this to answer itself you don't allow this to give you the understanding and you try to interpret the bible from your own feelings your own opinions your own interpretations or you try to interpret it from other sources what happens you get chaos and insanity but you, you allow the word of God to interpret the word of God. It interprets itself. You study the words, the meanings, the passages. You compare scripture with scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth. Because the same people, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, Todd White, they all believe that Jesus stopped being the son of God on the cross. Do you know what that is saying? Jesus is not God. They are saying Jesus is not God. How can God turn into Satan? How can God take on the nature and become one in nature with Satan? Can't. That's not possible. And furthermore, that's not what that means where Jesus became sin. What does it mean, Jesus became sin? What does that mean? Well, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we look, look at process here. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus at the, at the River Jordan? Behold the Lamb of God, which shall take away the sin of the world. And see in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The wages of sin is death. 
So you see, there had to be the lamb sacrifice for sin. He became the atonement. He, he became the punishment. He took upon him the penalty of, of the weight of sin. He didn't physically actually turn into sin. He didn't become, the word become does not mean as an actual, he turned into. He became the atonement, the punishment, the weight of that which bore the wrath of God for sin upon. He bore the penalty. He bore the weight. But who was that on the cross? God. God on the cross. As he purchased the church with his own blood, God. We take a look at the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus is God. He didn't become one in nature with Satan. You see, they added the they, the charismatics, the word of faith movement, the word of faith leaders added to the Bible. They changed the meanings of the words. They changed the context. They changed the understanding. They changed the uh, the, the implications of Scripture to fit their own personal views. Because the word of God is not their final soul authority. They are their own final soul authority. You're right, Olga. That's all blasphemy what they're saying. If you want to know more, please go get the book Christianity in Crisis by Hank Hanegraaff. Give that a read. It'll make your hair curl. Unbelievable. The satanic blasphemies of the Word of Faith movement. Unbelievable. The wretchedness of that, of that organization. But that's what happens when you don't take this as the final sole authority where it interprets itself, it tells you what to believe. You don't try to make it fit your, your understanding, your opinions. So we look at the creepy things of Islam, the creepy Copeland, <laughs> the creepy cults. How do they get like that? How do the creepy cults get like that? Because they don't want God to be the final authority. Satan said, you shall be as God, knowing the difference between good and evil. You know what that means? You have the knowledge to figure it out yourself. You have the knowledge to figure it out yourself. You can play God, can be like God, figuring it all out yourself. And that goes hand in hand with what I talked about earlier about turning everything spiritual and putting the Lord into everything and, and looking to him for wisdom and guidance and understanding. Dying to self. You refuse to be the authority. You deny it, reject it, recant it, refuse, adamantly refuse to call the shots yourself. You refuse to call the shots. You refuse to be the authority. You refuse to, uh, to, to try to figure it out yourself. You give it all to him. He will tell you what to believe. He will tell you what to say. He will tell you where to go. He'll tell you what to do. Through the word of God. Not through visions, dreams, experiences, and feelings, and all the rest of it. But through the word of God. You got to study it and you got to hold it. Otherwise, you wind up into this insanity. You wind up like the cults. Like Seventh-day Adventism. You wind up like, like Mormonism, JW, or, or Catholic, or all the rest of Orthodox, Anglican, and all the rest of it. You start, you start 
getting all twisted up. That's what happens when you don't take this seriously. A lot of a lot of good Protestant groups gone all messed up and screwy because they start messing with the Bible, adding to the Bible, changing the Bible to fit their own personal narrative. Like uh, all down to the hyper legalistic denominations where they turn it into a cult of works and righteous works to try to earn favor with God where you have to main you you maintain your own sanctification you literally are taking out away from Jesus upon yourself you're taking where the Bible says he is our sanctification, you're like, no, 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 Jesus. No, no, no. That's my job. I'll look after my own sanctification. I'm sorry, folks. I <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for my sanctification. I'll mess it up every 30 seconds. That's what the Bible says. He is our sanctification. But the cults take from God and make it a material physical thing they take what is meant to be spiritual of god and they make it physical material you see that do you see that they change what they don't understand into into their own mind of their own imagination romans 1 18 25 they fashion a god of their own imagination they they make it of what they physically materially can comprehend Instead of just uh, taking that which you can't really comprehend because it's so high and holy and above, it says all of him. How, why, why does he hold me despite myself? Well, it's not because I've earned it or, or I'm maintaining, but it's because he is faithful. He's gracious because it's all of him. I don't understand it. I don't know. Because God. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. He just does. There doesn't always have to be an explanation of something. You just believe it for what it says because that's what it is. The world, the worlds are framed by the word of God. He spoke it into existence. Well, how did that happen? Because he spoke it into existence. Well, I don't understand. Neither do I. Get in the line. He just does. He holds me despite myself because he does. He is my sanctification because he is. When I get to the point where I don't need to understand, I realize I just need to believe, that's where I have more peace. It's not wrong to understand. Don't get me wrong on this. What I'm saying is, I have to understand. I have to understand. No, no, no. It is what it is. I believe it. Make sure you understand that first. That's your first step. A calmness and a peace. It is what it is. He said it. That's what it is. That's what it is. He'll part the sea. Okay. He'll always provide. Okay. He will always answer my prayers. Good enough for me. Well, how does it work? How does it work? How I approach that. How I approach that is what's truly important. In a calmness and understanding, first from a position of full belief and faith. What it says is what it means, and I, that, I'm, that's sufficient. What it says is what it means, that's sufficient. 
And then I start to explore his goodness. I start to explore his grace, to explore what is. I don't have to try to figure it out if it is. No, no, it is. And then I walk the halls of just what is, and I just stand in awe of his goodness. It is because he said it. It is written. It is spiritual. The doctrines are what it says, what it means, and that is sufficient for me. And when I understand the sufficiency that is Christ, then I can explore his goodness. Does that make sense? You see, the cults try to switch that around. The cults try, try to turn it into, I have to understand and try to figure out how it is and how it becomes, how it works. No, 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 no. What we're supposed to do is sit at the feet of Jesus and just marvel in just what is. And if he wants to explain it to me, he will. And if I'd like to ask him a question, I ask him from a position of full faith and understanding, of, of belief of him. He is who he says he is. And it, and it is what it is because he said so. It's that simple. Doctrinal accountability in the person of Jesus Christ by the word of God. This is sufficient for everything. Any other comments, questions, issues, insights? Okay. <laughs> Going down through the comments. How did Muhammad even fit in her clothes? I don't know. I don't know if that's supposed to be from when she was a child or when she got older or whatever, but it, that's a that doesn't matter. It's the fact that he's a, he was a cross-dresser. He sounds like a lunatic. Yeah. Drinking blood is, is a satanic ritual. Considering that the Bible flat out says numerous times, do not drink blood. Do not eat the blood. It says multiple times. God says, do not eat blood. Um... And then you look at uh, why because it's pagan it's heathen it's demonic it's wrong don't do it. that's what the heathen do um yeah i'm not gonna eat blood yeah in islam there's no grace right no grace grace doesn't even exist it's not even a concept in islam there is no grace um yeah okay um uh, Speaking of which, let me just show you why. A quick a quick thing here. Okay, where is it? There it is. This. Okay, have you ever seen that? Give, give that a, uh, a look for a moment. You know that the crescent moon five-point star of Islam? That's the symbol of Islam, the crescent moon and star, single star? Did you know that the crescent moon and star are the exact direct symbol of Satanism? What are the odds? Yeah. Furthermore, how about... Where is it? There it is. This one. Take a look at this. Oh, I'm trying to... The crescent moon in Mecca, the star and crescent was the symbol was the emblem of the Ottoman Empire, symbol of Islam. The crescent pagan carving of the solar star deity Baal. It's the Luciferian symbol. 
It's the symbol of Baal. You ever seen that or heard about the hand symbol of Satanism where they where they hold the index and the pinky finger out and they fold all the other fingers in? And what that does is when you point the index and pinky, that creates the crescent. So that's the hand symbol, not with the thumb. We're doing it with the thumb. That's that's the uh, uh, the sign language for I love you. But you have to fold the thumb over. You fold the thumb over and only the index and pinky is pointing out. That creates the, the horns of the bull, the horns of Baal. That's the hand symbol of, of Baal worship. Um, yeah, so there you go. I have another one here. Yeah, here's one. Found that the Islamic day of Asherah. Which is interesting because Asherah in the Old Testament was the, was the goddess of witchcraft. Asherah is the goddess of witchcraft. And in Islam, they have a, a holy day of Asherah. That's interesting. Um, the prophets of Baal cried a loud voice and cut themselves according to the customs of, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from them. 1 Kings 18.28 And on the Islamic day of Asherah, guess what all of the Muslims do? They take knives and swords and lancets and cut their foreheads until their blood gushes in honor and favor and worship of Allah. So, how how should we, how should we as servants of the Lord operate? What authority, well, what happened here? Picture blew up. How, how should we hold ourselves in all understanding of truth? There we go. Fixed it. by what some person says because of what some other book or source or catechism says because of what how people feel you see lucifer came to jesus in matthew chapter 4 and tested him if thou be the son of god do this if thou be the son of god do this if thou be the son of god do this how did jesus respond every single time Jesus, God Almighty, manifested in the flesh. How did Jesus respond to every single thing that came up? It is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus referred back to the word of God, where the Lord says in his word that his word is above his very name. Okay, think about that one just for a moment. How high and holy is the name of Jesus Christ? How high and holy are the names of God? He says in his word that his word is above his very name. So to reduce the sovereignty of the word of God is demonic. See, this is what happens when people actually lower the importance of the word of god this is what happens sorry i'm trying to fix this there you go in 1962 prayer was removed from schools how are things since then you can actually look this up this is an actual chart that uh, people saw uh, how things went when they removed the bible and removed prayer from public schools violent crime skyrocketed single parent households 
skyrocketed. Premarital sex skyrocketed. Birth rates uh, for uh, uh, from unwed girls skyrocketed. SAT scores, intelligence plummeted. In 1962, the year, the year prayer was removed from school and and they they stopped promoting the Bible in schools. Some of you older folks might remember when they handed out the New Testaments in public schools. More so in the United States, they did that when they used to hand out Bibles in, in public schools. The moment they stopped doing that and they stopped prayer in schools, this is what happened. A direct, direct correlation. Think about that one for a moment. Everything is spiritual. Everything has a spiritual implication, a spiritual impact. Everything can be affected by the spiritual. When we stop to think about it, we stop realizing that. That's when we lose our influence. When the church stops fighting to bring the glory of God into the world, when we stop witnessing, stop evangelizing, we, we stop publishing God publicly our nations fall apart there's an answer to everything in the bible this picture right here this might be the most amazing data picture you see in a lifetime it shows 63,779 cross references in the bible these are direct clear cross references 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. The white bars along the bottom represent each Bible chapter from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The lines colors show the references distance from the other. A cross-reference is a scripture that references another scripture. Had the Bible been written by one person or at one time, this would be amazing. However, this, this here, was written by 40 authors over the span of 1,500 years on three different continents. The Bible is complex, diverse, and intricate, and yet it has one unified message. God lovingly is redeeming all who believe. What are the odds? Look at that. That in and of itself proves proves the supernatural power of the Bible. Literally would have been impossible. Literally impossible for just any individual to write or to be put together just by the whim of man. But as we understand, the Bible is not written by the will of man. But by the word of God. It was God breathed. Everything in the word of God is true. Things we even don't understand. Like, for example, this. This uh, has so many Christians just dumbfounded and weirded out. Take a look at this. This is the, the lifespans of individuals, of people before and after the flood. I found this one really interesting. Because by this, we see that... Uh, uh, where, uh, how long Adam lived, Adam knew Methuselah, knew Lamech, 
was not that long before Noah, and how long Noah lived and right up past the flood. And the thing that really got me was Shem. If you look down that a little bit more to the right of the picture, you see Shem, the blue line Shem. Shem was alive at the time of Isaac. Shem, the son of Noah, Shem, who saw the world before the flood, Shem would have known Isaac. You know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Shem knew Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. 